when I get a chance to speak, there's normally, uh, it's either one or two groups. I've got, I'm a, I am the chaplain, organizational chaplain for Shepherd's House Ministry. So I normally have a group of about 20 folks that um, work with uh, men, women, and children that are going through trauma. So the room's about maybe here to that chair right there. And, uh, or I'm talking with uh, 25 to 30 men who have been through trauma uh, and have been caught up in addictions and uh, are hungry to be loved. Uh, we believe at the Shepherd's House that grace changes everything. We believe that grace, when lived out in community, authentic, vulnerable community, that that will change people's lives. And I am a satisfied customer of that as well as um, having the opportunity to share. I also get to work with pastors, um, with their families, with missionaries, and the same thing applies. Men and women who have been through trauma in ministry, and yet in the church, we, we can kind of struggle a little bit with these folks having a place to be vulnerable, to experience grace. Uh, I remember when I was in college, I was told that if you're a pastor, uh, you don't share with your church what's going on in your life. You don't, you don't share with them the hurts and stuff like that. You go find somebody else. And, and I believe that for the longest time. And that works until it doesn't work anymore. Like most of life, right? It works until it doesn't work anymore. And I came to believe that the body of Christ is for pastors and teachers and those serving in all areas of ministry just as much as it is for the person that comes on Sunday or what have you. And so this is a beautiful place, right, for everyone. And so I'm, I'm gonna have to get practice going all the way from where Chad is, sweeping my head all the way around. So if I don't look at you, it's because I'm just used to looking in a room like, like, just like this, just like this. They're usually sitting right around me right here. Um, the smell of alcohol is in the air. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, I know I've done a good day when I smell like cigarette smoke and I just swept up a bar. It, it really is a beautiful place. And, uh, but the one thing about it, right, is this is what the kingdom is like. The kingdom is like this. Not like, not, not like this, but it's like, it's like that place where healing happens. I think it's important to, to make mention of the fact that the church never comes, or the, the kingdom never comes out of church, but the church always comes out of kingdom. Jesus said, if we seek first his what and his righteousness? Anybody remember this passage? I'm an interactive guy. I'm sorry. I'm used to 30 people. So don't, don't be bashful. Uh, assume that there's only 30 people around you. So uh, it, what and his righteousness? Well, what do we seek after? His kingdom. So we're always in the midst of seeing the kingdom grow. That's what Jesus was about. In the book of Matthew, we see these parables he taught 10 different times in the book of Matthew. He talks about the kingdom of heaven and he doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is. He says the kingdom of heaven is like. 
And what he says to the, to the crowds and what he says to the disciples is that the kingdom is something that's beautiful, it's amazing, it's all around you, you can see it. I can't give you a, a policy or bylaws that define it, but it's like this and it's like that and it's like this. And, and so I, I've got two parables I wanna fall on this morning. These are, these are ones that we use at Shepherd's House. It's what we use out at Anapa'o retreats. And it's one of my favorite ones. And so... Uh, Matthew chapter 14 is where we find ourselves. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like. Matthew 14, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought it. I think just a side note here, uh, that's pretty rascally, don't you think? I mean, think about it for a minute. He goes into a field, he finds a treasure, and he does what to it after he finds it? He hides it again, and then goes and buys the field. If you're the original owner of the field, how do you feel when you find out that the guy found a treasure and hid it and didn't tell you about it, right? So the one thing about the kingdom you need to know, it's not fair, Is, many of you could probably attest to the fact that you've been praying for years for the Lord to take something out of your life and he didn't do it until one day you were so caught up in his goodness, in his love, in his grace that God just seemed to have a way to go behind you as you just are totally enraptured by his love. He goes around the backside and picks your pocket. Do you understand what I'm saying? The Lord is like that. It's not so much, hey, this is what I, this is what I need you to do. It's like, well, we're just gonna work on you being so caught up in the fact that I love you and you're absolutely beautiful to me that as you're enraptured in that, the Lord just tricks you and saying, oh yeah, that, that thing that you've been praying for me about for the last X number of years, yeah, it's about time you stop praying about that. I've got that covered. You just focus on me and I'll just come back and one day and all of a sudden you realize, hey, it's been like a month and I haven't talked about that. I haven't thought about that. The kingdom of God is rascally. And it's definitely not systematic, amen? The last thing we ever wanna do with the kingdom is franchise it. It has to be something that's living and active. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. He says, so there's like this, uh, this field and it had a treasure and it was hidden and in his joy, he went, sold all that he had and he bought that field. He says, let me tell you what it's like again. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and he bought it. All right, so here's what I wanna do this morning. I wanna take a look at these. There's just three simple parts to this parable. And I wanna share with you my misunderstanding of it for the longest time in my life and what I believe it to be now. And the three parts are this. In the kingdom, there is a seeking there is a finding and there is a owning. There's a seeking, finding, and owning that's a part of the kingdom. And so this is the thing that I used to believe for the longest time. In fact, I have a book on my shelf that uses these parables and it's called The Cost of Discipleship. And so the belief was this, 
that when you find Jesus Christ, if you're here this morning and you're hearing the message for the first time, they would tell you that this parable is for you in that once you accept Jesus into your life, once you say, yes, I wanna be a Christian, then your job is to sell everything you have to have him or to give up everything you've got to own him. And so most of my life in ministry was spent constantly wondering if I paid enough to have Jesus in my life. Most of my life was spent wondering if I had done enough, if I had walked far enough, if I had done all the right things, or if I wasn't doing all the wrong things, so that when the day came that I died and stood before the Lord, the Lord wouldn't say to me that awful verse that says, I never knew you. Now, I'm not gonna take a show of hands this morning here to wonder if anyone's ever had those thoughts, but I gotta tell you, I did. And I was preaching the gospel every week. I was sharing with people how God loved them and how God died on the cross for them and rose again from the dead, which is all true. Those facts are totally true. But the problem was I was missing it by 18 inches. That interpretation, in my opinion, which I'm a foremost expert on, (laughs) I was missing it by 18 inches. Anybody know where that 18 inches might be? Oh, Matt does a good job, (laughs) right? He's taught you well. In my mind, I believe for the longest time my job was to keep my membership in the club. See, I got in for free, but to maintain membership, I've got to do, 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 and don't, don't, don't. So in my mind and in my heart, I believed in a God that was angry with me, disappointed in me, disgusted with me, or pretty much distant. Like I would pray and he had better things to do. Like, I don't know about you, but if Jesus just kind of walked down this path here, if you were anything like me, you would believe that when Jesus walked down the path, he would go sit, to some, he would go sit next to someone, but he wouldn't sit next to me. He knows me, right? People used to say that great, that great passage where he'll never leave you or forsake you. Well, that's good if you like him. If he never leaves you or forsake you and you think he's a judge or he's angry or he's disappointed in you, what a terrible verse to have in your life. But could it be understood another way? What if the seeker isn't you? What if the kingdom of God is like this? What if the kingdom of God is about Jesus going into a field. And when he finds a treasure that's been hidden away, he sells all that he has in his joy and buys it to himself. Or what if Jesus isn't the pearl in the parable? What if Jesus is the merchant who all of his life throughout all of eternity has been waiting for the moment to find that beautiful jewel and in it say, I will give everything I have to have this. And what if you, with all of your stuff, and I don't mean cars, boats, and portfolios, with the real stuff, what if with all of that stuff, he says, I 
choose you. I choose you. You know, my grandmother on my dad's side was just wonderful. She loved me. I could do no wrong. Uh, the part of the problem was she didn't know me very well. Uh, like most grandmothers, you see the best and that's all you see. Uh, but God isn't like that, is he? God sees all of us. He knows our hearts. He knows our motives. He knows your browser history. He knows where the bottle's hidden. He knows why you do the good things you do. And he looks at you and he looks at me and he says, in my joy, I choose you. And you, and you, and you, and you, and you. That's what the kingdom is like. And I'm gonna tell you, in my old experience of understanding those parables, the treasure actually becomes something that is, if it's Jesus and I'm purchasing it, then I've got to give him all my good to have him and all my bad I need to hide. But in the parable is that Jesus is the merchant or Jesus is the seeker, then the treasure changes. You see, let's, let's talk about this for a minute, right? If the kingdom of God is like this, I don't think it's past, past event, but current present, this is how it works, is that Jesus is looking for the treasure. He's looking for the pearl that each of us have, not just in our person, but in our individual day-to-day lives. What is it that we do with treasure? Like, so for example, we have some treasures in our house and it's in a secure, I guess I shouldn't tell people where it is, right? I, I, don't, I don't know these folks from Adam, you know? I did grow up in Grants Pass, so you are a bit sketchy. So I know, I grew up with you. But we have things that are, that, have value. And when you have things that are value, you lock them down and you hide them, right? So what is it in our lives that we lock down and hide that's most precious to us? This is my contention. It's the contention I have with um, those that I work with every day at the shepherd's house and pastors and missionaries. You know what? You know what's most precious to them? It's not their boats. It's not their degrees. Those they have no problem sharing. Those they have no problem talking about. Someone said it. What is it? They're secrets. I would contend that the most precious thing you have in your life is your shame. Your brokenness and your hurt. Why? Because we hide it and we bury it. Or if it's not like the treasure in the field, it's like the pearl at the shop, right? It goes overlooked, the parts of our life that we undervalue. We think God values the things we're good at, but the things we're bad at, God's, you know, God's just kind of, eh, whatever. But I made you for this because you're so good at it. Although 2 Corinthians 12 would tell us what? Paul would say that, my, that he would repeat what the Lord told to him about his weaknesses, right? My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in what? Anybody know? in my weakness. So I'm going to boast all the more about my what? Weaknesses, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. What the parable tells us is that Jesus is drawing out of us. He's teasing out of us. The kingdom of God is like, he's teasing out of us this thing to say, hey, guess what? Trust me, you can, 
you can dig that stuff up. We, I want that. That's beautiful to me. Those stories are beautiful to me. And then once we do that, then we're doing church. Once we begin to open up and do that, then, then kingdom begins to happen, amen? Because what we're beginning to realize in kingdom is that we do, we do not connect with one another on our strengths, but we connect with one another on our what? On our weaknesses. So that when we are connected by our weaknesses, it creates an atmosphere and a culture of grace where people can say, hey, guess what? I've got that problem too. I've got that struggle too. And people aren't freaked out. You know, there's a church that's struggling with grace because when someone stands up and says, hey, I'm struggling with this, he goes, <gasps> mm, we need to pray for them. But instead, when we stand up and we're connected in our weaknesses, we're drawn to one another and we say, I'm sorry, you said what? You, you do that? Oh, well, that's all right. So do all the rest of us. Welcome to the party. So Jesus in the parable says that I'm searching for the treasure and I'm bringing it out. Revelation says that behold, I stand at the door and what? And knock. If you're feeling this this morning, he's drawing it out. Will you let me have it? Will you let me have it? Because I don't see it the way you see it. You've, the world and those close to you have covered it with shame, but I don't see it that way. How many of us have come to realize that Jesus isn't so concerned about our sin, he's more concerned about our hurt? Sin at its core, rock bottom. Sin is when we reach out for something to help numb the pain. When we reach out for something other than God to numb our pain. See, that's why the cross says, hey, listen, okay, so the sin, the penalty, the fear, all that, I'm gonna take care of that. That's in the death, resurrection, done. So we don't need to talk about the penalty and the shame and all that. Now we can get to what? The heart and the hurt of what's going on. This is what the kingdom is like. And if we're not careful as Christians, when we gather together and we start connecting on our strengths rather than our weaknesses, we start focusing on the behavior and less upon what's going on underneath the behavior to find out why are they doing what they're doing? Where's the pain? I don't know about you, but as a Christian, I'm quick to homogenize people, right? You get us together long enough, we all sit the same, we all dress the same, we all sound the same, we all sing the same songs, we all do, 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 you know, we all just homogenize over time. In fact, I would bet, and we should try that some Sunday when I'm not around, because I only attend here once a year, right? But maybe next Sunday, do it when I'm not around. So nobody put up the chairs. Now Matt's not here. He is here. I didn't think he was going to be here. So, okay, you put them up. Let's not put up the chairs Sunday. Watch what happens. 
When people show up, what do you think they're going to do when they grab a chair? Sit down. They're going to make rows just like this. And that's not bad. That's what we do. But you understand that we are in the business of learning how to not homogenize a crowd, but to see people as individuals, as children loved by God. So we don't need to act the same. You know, I had this gal in our church. She was telling me her story about what she was like before she knew the Lord. And she had great stories and she was laughing and she was joking. And, she was, and then she said, then I came to Jesus and now my life is fulfilled. Oh, I kind of liked her before she knew the Lord. <laughs> A little caliente. So Jesus is drawing out the treasure and the last part we have, so we have a seeking, we have a finding, then ultimately there's a change of ownership. Jesus said that you are mine now. He buys the field, he buys the pearl, and he says, guess what? That's mine, you're mine now. That, that memory, that thought, that's mine now. I own the shame. It's not yours anymore. It's not yours anymore. So whenever you talk to the Lord, say, Lord, I'm just feeling so bad about this. The Lord's like, whoa, time out. That's not yours. That's mine. Don't take that from me. Don't give that stuff to the Lord and then take it back to him. Take it back from him. He's like, no, 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 that's mine. How many of us have prayed to God to remove the memories from the things we've done wrong or things that have been done wrong to us, right? Right? I'll, I'll put two hands up for you, all right? So God takes away the shame, but he allows us to keep the memories. What's that about? Well, it's about the fact that they're redeemed memories. They're not, they're not memories of shame anymore. Now they're memories that qualify you to guess what? You get to give it away. You get to give away what it's like to be found, what it's like to be saved, what it's like to say, hey, listen, I get what you're going through. I get it. And I get why you do what you do. I'm not, I'm not scared by your action. I'm interested in your heart. So at the shepherd's house, we call this trauma-informed care. We don't ask the question, why are you doing what you're doing? Our question is, what happened to you? What happened? Because every behavior has a purpose. Every behavior has a purpose. So what are they getting out of what it is that they're doing? Why, what happened to them? And what we begin to realize is that Jesus sees us in his joy. He picks us up. He says, I see you as fully and completely loved by God, even with all your stuff. If you're a note taker here, you wanna write this down. This is not my quote, but it's one that I've adopted as my own. It's this, there's nothing you can do to cause God to love you anymore and there's nothing you can do to cause God to love you any less. Let me write that down one more time in case you didn't catch that. There is nothing you can do, nothing you can do to, God, to cause God to love you anymore. And there is absolutely nothing you will ever do, nothing that will ever be done to you that will ever cause God to love you any less. He is absolutely 100% in love with you. 
Ephesians 1.18, Paul prays this prayer. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Which by the way, when Paul prays, it's God's prayer for you. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so you would know the glory and the hope to which you have been called, the glorious inheritance in the saints. It's his inheritance in the saints. So where is God's inheritance? Everybody take your finger, put it up like this, point it up in the sky. Now swing it right down into here. You are the inheritance of God. You I know we sit here and we give praise to God. Like, God, I'm so glad that you saved me. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. I am so blessed to have you in my life. Do you know where that comes from? That's the Holy Spirit speaking into your heart because that's what God's saying about you. God's looking down at you and he's saying, I don't know if you know this, but I started this entire thing so that I could have you with me forever. That's what I did. This is what it's about. I've been looking for you and I love you. And I know you think that me being in your life is amazing, but it's better for me. Because the parable says he sold all that he had and in his joy bought it. It's not in, he sold all that he had and had buyer's remorse. It's like, oh man. I don't know about that Mike guy. Gosh, he just, I thought I was getting this, but I got this. I just didn't know. I didn't know. I should have had a Mike fax. I would have known better, right? Yeah, it's a consumer report. That's right. But what we come to realize is this, right, friends? Is that God has never been disillusioned with you because he had no illusions to begin with. He knew exactly what he got in you. A broken, hurting child that needs love just as they are with all of their stuff. He's searching for that. See, we can make promises all day long that God's gonna do this, God's gonna do this, God's gonna do that. But listen, the most important thought you'll ever have in your entire life is what you feel about God. Not what he says, but what you think about him. And when you become to understand how he really feels about you, not what he says, but how he really feels about you, you might get to that place where you're willing to be found. I think for a lot of people that are Christians, they feel like they're POWs in the kingdom of God. Like they got into this and they don't know how to get out. At least to save face. That's not the kingdom. that God loves you and he owns all the stuff. So you have two jobs this morning, Edgewater. Two jobs, two jobs. First one is this, be found. Now I know for some of us, we might think, okay, so Mike, what does that mean to be found? All right, I know that's a churchy word or churchy term. Let me decompress it, okay? 
You need to admit to God, to yourself, and to another trusted friend what's really going on, what really happened. Now, I know many of you right here just pulled the ripcord, gone. It was good until you said that. I'm not telling anybody. My wife doesn't even know. Okay. He loves you and you can trust him. The greatest gift you'll ever give God is your trust. You can trust him. You know, that's why these folks that are gonna come up front here at the end of the service, I think they're pretty trustworthy men and women. Are they? I've never met them. Do they seem trustworthy? Or are they just willing? Or, are they trustworthy? So the first thing is we're found. To the degree that I'm unwilling to trust people is to the degree that I'm willing to trust God. You hear what I just said? That's why we are the body of Christ. So bring it to Jesus. Secondly, so we're to be found. And secondly, we're to be treasure hunters. What do I mean by that? It's because the spirit of God lives in me and I've been found or I'm being found. I think it's a process. It's always in process. Um, I see it in others. I become a person that sees the treasure in other people. So it's not enough for me to look at my wife and say, hey, you know, Ash, you shouldn't do that, 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 that. That's thus saith the Lord, okay? That's not the way it should be. You should do Okay, well, that's the behavior. That's the stuff above the water. But treasure hunters aren't all that concerned about what's above the water. What's above the water just is symptomatic. So I wanna know, so what's that about? Let's take the behavior off the table for just a second. Let's just set that aside. So what's that about? What happened? See, if we can create an atmosphere of grace, spirit-filled grace, then we have the opportunity to really get into the hearts of people's lives. We get to speak the treasure. Because ultimately I get to tell Ashley, hey, Ashley, you know what? I know that happened, but that's not who you are. You're loved and you're absolutely perfect and wonderful all the time. Does that make sense what I'm saying here? Then once you got that, then the behavior stuff, then that's just kind of, it becomes more fodder. Yeah, but this is it. We get to the stuff. So <clears throat> what's gonna happen or what I've been told happens is that I pray and then there's folks that come up and there's an invitation to come up and be found and there's an invitation to come and be baptized. I'm starting to think in my ministry, I think my calling is to lead Christians to Christ. I'm not really interested in you becoming a Christian. I'm curious if you've ever been a part of the kingdom before. 
If you've, if you've never been a part of a kingdom like this, if you've never been found, why go another day being hidden and buried and left in obscurity in your heart and soul? Jesus loves you. So Father, this morning, we just thank you so much for your goodness and your grace, your kindness, your relentless kindness. Lord, I think you love putting those two words together, relentless and kindness. It just never stops. You never stop pursuing us. You never stop knocking on the door of our heart and asking, will you trust me with this? So Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do what he does best. Would just rub his hand over the surface of our hearts and find those cracks. Find those places that we've been covering up, things that we've been terrified to share, believing that we'll be rejected, believing we'll be shamed, believing we'll be judged. And instead, we would take that step of faith and trust you, that you would allow us to be found this morning. And God, I pray that you would make us a people that it's safe for people to be found in this community. That, Lord, there would be a vulnerability in the midst of Edgewater, a fragility, a beautiful fragility that that recognizes that it's okay to hurt in this place. And so God, I pray it this morning. Thank you for my friends here. So honored, God, to get to share the message you've put on my heart with people that, just like me, uh, people in need of love, mercy, and forgiveness. We thank you so much, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.